Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. So IXL Learning is a multi-subject online program for kids, and it's used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 14 million students use it. And if you have kids who are trying to get ahead or if they're struggling with certain subjects or studying for a test that's coming up, IXL is this personalized learning tool that you can use to help kids learn what they need to learn faster. And they have programs K through 12, so there's something for every level. And some of my nieces and nephews have been homeschooled, and so my family has used tools like this to supplement curriculum or to brush up or to sharpen skills. IXL Learning has won tons of awards, and so many students have benefited from it. So make an impact on your child's learning, get IXL now. And Ologies listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Ologies. So visit IXL.com slash Ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Oh, hey, it's that bottle of mustard you don't even remember buying, but you've moved with twice now. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. Okay, I just want to say, if you're listening, you're not a huge fan of spiders, I want to tell you that you're brave, I'm proud of you, and spoiler alert, this is not scary at all. We barely even talk about spiders themselves, but rather we just kind of focus on things that come out of their rears. So for anyone in your life who's a spider-phobe, just gently maybe send them this episode. Tell them it's a great way to admire the critters and there are very few goosebumps in the road ahead. So one day we're going to work up to arachnology. We're going to talk about the animals themselves one day, but today is not that day, my friends. So today we're just walking into spider webs. But before that, a quick detour into Thank you, Shire. So thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. You submit questions for the ologists each week. A dollar a month gets you in that club. Just go to patreon.com slash ologies. And it lets me pay my editors well and donate to four or five charities each month while still getting to be choosy about who sponsors the show. So thanks to everyone also wearing ologies merch from ologiesmerch.com. Thanks to everyone who has made sure that you're subscribed, especially with the recent iOS updates. So check and make sure that you're subscribed and it's auto-downloading the fresh ones. And thank you to everyone who rates the podcast to keep it up in the charts. And of course, those of you who leave reviews for me to creep with teary eyes, such as, for example, mstan96, who is applying to grad school and says, thanks, dad, that's me, for combating imposter syndrome by sharing the human side of science and for always supporting all of your pod children's dreams. Well, thank you, mstan96. I look forward to calling you Dr. mstan96. Okay, spidronology. What in the dark, shadowy night is that. So unless you are a spider doctor, you probably did not know that there is a word for spider webs, and it's spidroins. Well, spidroins are the main proteins in spider silk, and they're as strong as steel, but they're more flexible, and they're similar to collagen or keratin. We're going to get into it. So yes, kiddos, this is a whole episode unraveling the mysteries and looking into the future of spider silk. 
what it is, how it works, how it may change all of our lives. So I met this ologist when I went to Utah State University to film a segment in his lab for Innovation Nation, which is my wonderful dream job slash day job as a correspondent for CBS for them, Saturday mornings. Check your local listings along with my other own show on the CW, Did I Mention Invention? Did I mention that I have a show called Did I Mention Invention? Okay, so you can find those on weekends, CW, CBS. Anyway, it was a very beautiful April afternoon. And after we finished filming his segment, I coerced him into sitting down for a podcast chat. And he is a world famous pioneer in spider silk. So stick around to get a lifetime's worth of appreciation and context about what a spider web is, what it's made of, how strong a single thread can be, how it's synthesized in labs, future medical uses, some superhero flimflam, transgenic goats, gene splicing, bow ties, the most beautiful thing I have ever seen, and what too much coffee does to spider brains, with Utah State biology professor and your new favorite, spidronologist, Dr. Randy Lewis. beans. So if you could tell me your first and last name and how you pronounce it. Okay. Randy Lewis. Mm-hmm. Dr. Randy Lewis. Dr. Randy Lewis. And if you were an ologist of any sort, what do you think you would be? Um, probably a biomaterial ologist. Okay. Or you deal with Spidron. Spidron. It could be a spidronologist, but most people wouldn't know what that was. So biomaterials might be a broader thing for people to know what I really am. Well, they're about to know what a spidronologist is. True enough. True enough. Of the people in the world who work with spider silk, is it a small group? It's a relatively small group. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that um, the entire publication record probably involves... Um, no more than 30 labs. Mm-hmm. There might be a few more than that. And of those, probably only 20 of them have ever published more than one paper. How many papers have you published? Um, my total is like 150. And on spider silk, we're probably talking 70. Oh my gosh. What about patents? Um, so we have 11 patents right now. Um, and we have three that are pending. Oh my lord. So how long have you been in the spider silk spidrion game? Yeah, just cause spider silk works. Okay. Because so, <laughs> uh, nobody uses, uses the, the spidrion term that we came up with to, to describe the proteins. I keep wanting to say spidrion, but it's spidroin, like it rhymes with groin, which is, I guess, where the silk comes from on your body if you're a spider. I believe I should be considered the father of spider silk, at least at the molecular level, although I've I've now passed enough generations that some are calling me the grandfather of it. Hi, Grandpa. um, But uh, we cloned the first spider silk gene 30 years ago this coming summer. 30 years ago this coming summer? 30 years, Do you remember the date? No, I don't. You gotta have a cake or something. Get a sheet cake from Costco. That's probably true. We probably ought to celebrate somehow at least. So ice cream cake from from the ice cream store is probably better for for my group anyway. So get a Carvel. You deserve it. Yeah, that's right. We don't have them around here. So <laughs> now tell me a little bit about 
your backstory before we go into how you started cloning the proteins of spider silk. What was your backstory? So I was born and raised in Northern Wyoming. I went to Caltech as as an undergrad. I'm a two-time inductee into the Caltech Athletic Hall of Fame. Really? Because uh, I was the captain of the first wrestling team ever to win a conference championship. And we actually won three in a row. I didn't yeah. even know that they had a wrestling Same. team. Well, they don't anymore. Okay. But they did then. Okay. So there are no academic marks for my history at Caltech, but there are wrestling marks. So, <laughs> so you know, go to a brain school and be a non-brain is, is the way to go. Um, I then went to grad school at UC San Diego, did a postdoc at the Roche Institute. So Randy did his undergrad in chemistry and his master's and PhD in biochem, then did postdoc in molecular biology. So notice zero of those degrees were in entomology or arachnology. So how did he get all tangled up in these spider webs? Got started on the spider silk sort of, of as a, as a sidelight and it became the dominant thing that we did in the lab. Your side hustle took over. It's true. Absolutely true. <laughs> Did you have a thing for spiders before that? or I don't think that I had a thing for them. I think that I recognized spiders as being interesting organisms and knew some about them, but clearly not nearly as much as I've, I've learned since then to, you know, to appreciate just what an amazing organism they are. And so where did you start in the field? What was your first intro into spider silk? Um, so I was, I was working, uh, with a company out in California, a small biotech company, and they had developed technique to, for vaccine. So what they were wanting to do was to make silkworm silk. And it became clear that economically that never made any sense. So they asked me to look at spider silk and, and I did. And at the time there was a lot of known about the biology, but absolutely nothing about the, the actual fibers themselves, mm -hmm. except that they were made out of protein. And proteins were what my lab was good at. So they decided that it was too long-term a project, which turns out to be true, obviously, because 30, 30 years, years later, <laughs> we, we still really don't have any products out there. So as a biotech company, you know, you'd gone belly up a long time ago. <laughs> so I was able to talk to the Office of Naval Research, which they had contacted about their vaccine stuff, and produced a fairly small little proposal to them to see if we couldn't clone the gene for protein that made up one of the spider silks. And I ended up getting the grant, but it's interesting because it got two reviews from the outside, one of which said this was the best thing they could, could be the best thing since sliced bread. The other one said this is the stupidest idea <laughs> I ever heard of. And fortunately, <laughs> the program officer um, chose to take the first one and, and give me money. Fortunately, when uh, in the first year, we were able to clone and sequence the very first spider silk gene. In the first year? First year. We got it done before a year was up, so... Man, I've been meaning to reorganize my kitchen cabinets for at least two years, <laughs> and you cloned a gene in a well, year. <laughs> yeah, well, at a certain stage, it's the people. It's the people you have. It's not you that accomplish something. And and I'm I'm at the stage where you know I I I know how to solve problems, but I don't know how to do most of the things in the lab anymore. <laughs> okay, before we get too into how this golden fleece unicorn hair heaven tinsel unobtainium is obtained, let's get down to some brassy tacks. Walk me through a little bit about. What is spider silk? Because I know enough about a spider butt to know that different things comes out of their silk glands. Yes. But what's going yes. on? So um, the spiders that we work with make six different kinds of silk in a glue. They're the ones that make the typical round web. It's called an orb web that, uh, that most people think about that spiders make. Okay, side note. If you're wondering what invisible force has captured your face, what gossamer 
thready creation has veiled you at night, those are likely the work of orb weaver spiders. They are architects and artisans. They are craft spiders. Their talent is innate and their spiral spider webs are just iconic. Now, some, like the Nephila golden orb weavers, spin this brilliant yellow silk. It just glimmers. It's like threads of gold. So what's up with cobwebs? Well, spiderweb tends to mean one that is still inhabited, and cobwebs refer to old abandoned ones. So once they get dusty, they tend to lose their tack. But a cobweb is also a type of web, one that's less of a two-planed spiral net, more of a three-dimensional maze. We'll get into that in a bit. And they use the silks for very different purposes, and they have very different mechanical properties. So, you know, evolutionarily, you sort of have um, a lot of evolutionary tinkering that went on before we ever got to, to take a look at it. So basically, in most of the glands, there's a couple of them that, that they don't produce silk all the time. But generally, they produce silk, put it in a gland. Um, they have it in a form that's still not completely identified. But we think they're sort of very small little balls of protein. Mm-hmm. Um, that are present in there, and micelles, uh, but protein micelles um, as opposed to membrane micelles, which is what most people think about. When he says micelles, he's not talking about his own cells, but rather little gatherings of proteins hanging out in a huddle that are called micelles. Then when they pull the silk out, so they pull it out like floss, they don't squeeze it out like toothpaste. Okay. So all of the silks have to be pulled out. And when they pull that, the silk at the very end of a, of a tube going down from the gland that they make it to the outside, um, all the silk then behind it starts to get pulled out because it's very viscous. I want real thick and juicy. Mm-hmm. On the trip down that tube, the shear forces cause the protein molecules to basically line up. Like you can imagine if you were to take spaghetti, start getting it down through a funnel, all the spaghetti molecule, the spaghetti has to line up or it doesn't go down. Mm-hmm. So that's what's happening in this trip down there. Um, when they do that, they actually, protein molecules lock together and become insoluble. And that's how the fiber forms. Amazingly enough, it can happen in as little as 10 milliseconds. So oh if God. you see a spider fall, that silk is solidifying in, in milliseconds as it comes out of the spider. And do they use a combination of their spinnerets or their legs or gravity? What gives it that force? All of the above. So they can't squeeze it out. So they either have to pull it out with their leg. The other thing they can do is attach it to something and walk away from it. Okay. So the silk that we, that most people are interested in called dragline silk. And it's dragline because when they walk away, they drag it behind them. Okay. So if you see a spider crawling across the ceiling, for instance, if you watch it, it'll crawl for a little ways and then it'll start wiggling its butt. We can't stop twerking about it. When it does that, it's using another silk to attach the major silk to a, a some kind of a protrusion on the wall. Mm-hmm. So just like a climber, you know, if a climber climbs so far, then they put a piton or a hook or something in there. It's exactly what spiders have been doing for 400 million years. Oh so so rock climbers are a little behind on the deal <laughs> And in addition, they can stick the silk to almost anything. Now, they have trouble with something like Teflon, but they can stick it to glass wonderfully. Oh, gosh. So, you know, you put them in a glass aquarium, for instance, or a plexiglass aquarium, and you can see them, you can see the little attachments where they put all their silk down. Mm -hmm. That is how they produce the silk and have to pull it out. 
And what are some other types of silk? Because you said six. So that's the So they have dragline silk. That's the framework of the web, and they use it for their protective line. There's a minor ampulet silk that they use that's mostly for reinforcing of the web. There is a tubuliform silk, and that's almost crystalline. So the, the silk is, is relatively strong, but if you try to bend it, it'll break easily. They use that for an outer coating when they lay their eggs. Oh. Um, there's an acinoform silk that they use to both wrap their prey and wrap their eggs. So that's the inside case of an egg layer. They have aggregate silk, which is the silk and is the glue uh, in there. Puriform is the attachment. So they use that to attach their silks down. And then there's, then there's flagelliform silk, critically important, because that's most of the spiral in the web. And that's what they use to catch their prey with. Mm-hmm. So it's very stretchy. So basically, insect hits it, just stretches the, the, the silk out until all the energy is absorbed, and then it gets stuck in the glue. Mm-hmm. So it's a boyoyoyoing silk. Well, not so much. Yeah, I was not right about that. So the key is you don't want a trampoline. Okay. So what happens is it absorbs that energy and then radiates it back as heat. What? So if you look at it, it hits the web. So the web doing this, the web comes back very slowly and loses like 75% of all that energy as heat on that retraction back up very slowly. Wow. So it doesn't just take the prey and then shoot the prey. That would not be very efficient. (laughs) You know, it'd look cute, but it would not do the spy, you know, for the spider's lifetime, it would not be very efficient. So you'd lose a lot of your prey. Okay. So real quick, they've got major ampulate or drag line silk, one that is just super strong. It's as strong as steel, but it's tougher and it acts as those webs spokes and the non-sticky outer rim. And then there's minor ampulate, which is temporary kind of like a sketch while they're building the web. Then they have flagelliform sticky silk for the inside spiral of the web, that little bullseye, super sticky. And then tubiliform silk is stiff egg sac business. There's acidiform, which is the saran wrappy sheet that they mummy their prey with. It's two to three times as strong as that first dragline silk. And then there's also aggregate, which is hardcore glue silk. And they're produced by four to six hairy nubbins on their undercarriage called spinnerets. And those each have a bunch of nozzles, kind of like Froyo dispensers. And then they're stretched out and it's extruded from the glands from the spinnerets. Does it look like a glove slowly waving at you, palpating some goo? Yes, it does. But let's get back to the silk itself. And how different from a molecular structure are these six different types of of silk? Um, So they, all of them have what I call a Lego sequence. So those are sequences that naturally when they make a fiber interdigitate. So they literally have holes and pins just like Legos do. So most of the silks have some form of Lego. Now, turns out some of them have longer pins, some of them have bigger holes, some of them have, you know, some variations, but all of them have something that allows them to stick together to make a fiber. Mm -hmm. Then the ones that have stretch have in there something that looks like a slinky, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at, at a nano scale. And so when it stretches and you let go, it retracts. Now, as we said, the difference is is it doesn't retract as fast as you stretched it. So in that retraction, it loses heat. 
And so, you know, it, it, it keeps from basically serving as a trampoline. Mm-hmm. So what's unique is that there are not variations in those proteins between different species of spiders. So really? if you look at all of the orb weavers, mm-hmm. the, pro- the individual six proteins and, and the glue protein all look very, very similar in each species compared to each other species. Now, they look very different from each other, but not from the same silk in a different species. Really? They can be separated for as much as 150 million years, and still the silks, you would recognize it. I mean, somebody who's who's in the field would recognize instantly looking at that sequence which silk it was from any of those. I mean, there's probably... A handful of you on Earth that could probably look at that and say, oh, I know what that I, is. I would hope there's more than that now. At least, you know, my students should all know that. That's but, a good point. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly a limited one, but it, it, they're, they're really easily recognizable. And how are the spiders determining, okay, I know I need a drag line here to make the... The framework of my net. I know I need something sticky. Any idea? It's all genetically programmed. Yeah. It's absolutely clear. I mean, they have no brain in the sense of, of being able to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they are hardwired. This silk does this. This silk does this. This silk does this. So, you know, in some cases, we can collect the silks mm-hmm. um, from the spider directly. But most of the time, it's difficult. For instance... They know that they want to use the prey wrapping silk when they have prey. Mm-hmm. So it turns out if you can find just the right frequency on the spider, then they'll believe that they have something to, pr- to wrap. Mm-hmm. And they'll start putting that silk out so you can catch that. But most of them, you know, major and minor are relatively easy. The rest of them are almost impossible to collect because you can't provide the right stimulus. To get the right major and minor, you just don't have the right trigger Mm -hmm. to to tell it to do it. It's true. A web can act like a harp, and spiders here with tiny slits in their feet, totally normal, and threw little hairs all over their body. And I got ensnared reading a paper titled Micro and Nanostructural Details of a Spider's Filter for Substrate Vibrations, Relevance for Low-Frequency Signal Transmission. But again, Back to the web. You can buy a tiny spool of the golden silk on Etsy for $200 a gram. And I googled it, and that was way more expensive than street drugs. So with this smorgasbord of silks, some have to be stronger and cooler than others, right? Like some have to be better. And now which spider has the best silk? Um, You know, I I think that's a tough question. There, there is a bark spider from South America that is argued to have the strongest silk. Now, it's strongest in the combination of stretch and strength because it stretches lots more than most spider silks do, mm-hmm. not because it's necessarily strong. The variations in the silk, even with an individual spider, are, are fairly large because they don't do a good job of controlling the diameter. Really? And whenever you measure strength, you measure it based on cross-sectional area. So obviously, if something's fatter, then it's going to be stronger than something that's thinner. Just side note, think of a braid versus a hair or a rope versus a thread, or one string of the cheese versus the whole string cheese. I'm so hungry. So, you know, when you say which spider has the best, I think it's which silk is the best, and that's clearly dragline. It's Mm -hmm. got the best combination of strength and elasticity to give you the, you know, that unique combination that no man-made material can can Mm -hmm. beat. Is dragline silk the one where you're walking into the backyard at night and you get a web on your face and you feel like you're going to die? 
Well, I don't know about the last part of that statement, <laughs> but certainly the, it, it's it's actually the combination of all of them because okay. the web has four different silks in it. Okay. So it has major, minor, it has the glue, and it has the capture spill. Mm-hmm. So when you hit that, it's, yeah, I think it's 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 probably more the fact that it adheres to your face because <laughs> of the glue. And yeah. It also stretches enough, so you know you can sort of feel that your face is going into it. When it finally breaks, it's already now you know sort of of, of attached all over there and, and stretched tight. Does that ever happen to you? And you go, oh, good one, guys. Um, I, not very often, okay. uh, especially because, you know, in, in the Rocky Mountains, most of the webs are relatively well concealed, whereas, you know, in, in places like down south and, you know, they, they stick them out anywhere mm-hmm. because they have a much higher opportunity here in the Rockies. Most of them are where there's some light shining or something like that or in a dark place in a barn. So it has happened occasionally <laughs> in a barn where, you know, you just can't see them until it's too late. The ones that feel like very fine fishing line where you're you can almost feel it snap and yeah. go, that was stronger than I expected it. Yeah. And yeah. who did I just wake up? Right. Is, right. <laughs> is the thing. Even uh, though I love spiders, I'm like, yeah. I definitely don't want to ruin your home. Right. I don't want to be like Hurricane right. Alley. Yeah. Just right. coming through. P.S. One of the most beautiful things I have ever laid my actual eyes on is this 11 by 4 foot tapestry woven from golden orb weaver silk. It was on display at the American Museum of Natural History in New York in 2009. And it was the first stop I made in New York when I went then. And it looks kind of like a table runner, but made out of sunlight or like a bedspread woven from an angel's laugh. It also looked expensive and took several years of milking wild Malagasy spiders to make. It was not casual. Um, And now, what are some applications of spider silk? I I know the only thing that I'm familiar with uh, that I think of that comes to mind is this tapestry that was woven out of golden orb weaver silk um, that's been on display. And I I mentioned it to you earlier, and and you said that it makes you kind of sad. Yeah, because clearly, um, you know, it, it was done by hand. Um, by women in Madagascar. Mm-hmm. And um, it's obvious they were not paid a lot of money for the amount of work they had to do. So, um, you know, it, it, I, I think it's an amazing accomplishment. Clearly, it is without a doubt the largest amount of, of spider silk that's ever been used for any purpose whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, the women had to collect the silk from the spider and then they had to weave it into the tapestry and that kind of stuff. So it's amazing. It's just, um, you know, I feel like the people over there may have been I mean maybe they had no jobs in a dollar a day or whatever they got paid was still better than nothing and maybe it was mm-hmm. but it, it's it's a huge amount of manpower for something that's wonderful to look at an art object but beyond that I'm not sure you couldn't have made something you know a tenth that size mm-hmm. and and still been been an impressive accomplishment right uh, in terms of that so I hadn't considered this, and it's a great point. The two men who made the tapestry were from Europe and America, and they were hiring locals. And with 3,000 giant spiders harvested, milked, and returned to the wild daily over a course of four years, a budget of a half a million dollars is pretty low for that amount of toil. And it rightfully dims the glow of the original work for me, but it also shines a light on why Randy's work, understanding and figuring out more affordable ways to harvest this material is so important. He's not looking to fabricate a cape so that an alabaster supermodel can strut in it for a few minutes before it's returned to a lockbox. And the work that you're doing uh, with Spidey Tech, what types of materials do you think that you'll be getting to fabricate? And and how will that kind of change the way that we 
live potentially hopefully yeah. fingers crossed all right. eight arms crossed yeah right um so i think that what what most people are not very aware of is is that um we've been able to develop uses other than just fibers and i think everybody when you think about spider silk you think about clothing you think about bulletproof vests you think about climbing ropes think about lots of things along those lines but on the fiber end in addition um we think there's a real opportunity for composite materials especially something like epoxy based composite materials um that comes from two reasons one is unique combination of stretch and strength and and there's no other materials out there that that you could use for reinforcing to do that so a composite epoxy material is usually made of, say, glass strands or carbon fibers embedded in a glue or a resin. So picture something made out of fiberglass and then imagine an upgrade to spidrine. Um, the second is that we found that spider silk um, can be made into an amazing adhesive. Well, we know ours adheres to plastic, it adhere, adheres to metal, it adheres to, you know, to, to wood. I mean, there's almost nothing that we can't coat. Using it as uh, thin films, using it for coatings, there's almost nothing we can't coat. Um, and part of the coating idea is that we can put additives in there. So, for instance, coating catheters, we can put antimicrobials and anti-fouling factors so that you don't get infections when you implant a catheter and they don't plug up at the end, which which happens to a pretty amazingly high percentage of catheters that get in, implanted in, in hospitals. And I think everything from medical to there's clearly interest in, in the defense department and lots of things in between. It seems absolutely unreal that it can be as strong as steel, but a lot lighter? Sure. It's because it's got a combination of strength and stretch. Mm -hmm. And that's really what makes it unique, I think. Side note, if you've never had a catheter, but just Googled one to get an idea of how they work, wow. Whew. Boy, howdy. Hot damn. I would like that to not get infected, please. So... Thanks, spiders. And also, like we heard in the Bones episode of Osteology, strength and flexibility is what make things work the best. So let spiders inspire you. It's okay to stand up for yourself and be strong, but maybe have some wiggle room or compromise when called for. So we might have cars that have a chassis made out of spider silk and panels that are made out of spider silk? Right. And, ah! and again, there'll be composite materials. But you can imagine if you design it right, that maybe you don't get a ding the next time somebody taps your bumper mm -hmm. because you've got something that flexes and comes back again. Right. They're just going to bend and pop right back out again. Thanks, spiders. Exactly. <laughs> um, what is your relationship to spiders? I don't hate spiders. I love them. Um, you know, I guess I've always had some admiration, but certainly, you know, since we started this work, it, it's, it's hard not to be, um, incredibly, um, admiring about their success. Mm -hmm. I mean, recognizing that, you know, you find them in the dead of the rainforest, you find them in the middle of the desert, um, every place but Antarctica, and they were there before it got too cold for anything to survive. Mm -hmm. The fact that they have such a wide variation in prey, they have such a wide variation in capture strategies, it's pretty impressive to realize just um, how successful they are as an organism. Do you get a lot of spider gifts? I see that you have some knickknacks. I got I got quite a few in my office, and, and I've <laughs> gathered most of them here. Some of them I've, I've actually gotten. Some of them have been given to me. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it's it's that. hard not to. So, mm -hmm. 
It's true. He had a fair amount of tasteful spider knickknackery on the windowsill, and we took a picture, each holding a woven spider. They were not in a glass case, nor did they break anyone's bank. They were just made out of wire, probably cotton threads. When it comes to, well, when it comes to the future of spider silk, how far off is it? I mean, are we talking like in maybe 20 years, I'll get to wear a spider vest? I think the answer is no. And, and I think the fiber end is going to come faster than, than, um, we initially thought because we can use the transgenic silkworms mm-hmm. to make fibers now that our best fibers from the transgenic silkworms are as good as spider silk. Oof. And, and in some ways you might even argue a little better, but certainly as good as, as native dragline silk. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that, that we have a relatively easy manufacturing process to be able to make large amounts of, of that. And walk me through how you have managed to take spider silk and have it made in a lab and made through other organisms instead of having to hand spool a Nephila spider in Madagascar. Sure. How are you doing it? Right. Um, so, you know, as, as part of the first week we did, I identified the genes that the spiders use to make spider silk protein. Mm-hmm. Then what we do is take that gene and usually we make a synthetic copy because the use of certain codons in the in the DNA is species dependent. So, for instance, the the spiders use certain ones, and E. coli bacteria uses different ones. Okay. So, we try to do is match up. We make the same protein sequence. We just make it with different sequence of DNA so that it matches better with what the organism uses. Mm-hmm. Then we just take that gene and pop it into the organism we're looking at. Okay, sit the hell down because this is bananas, and it may inspire this year's Halloween costume. Okay, so almost a decade ago, Randy and a research team were able to splice spider silk making genes into goats. And the goats then produced liquid spider silk in their milk. And Randy was able to filter out the silk and then stretch it to the right consistency using machinery. So while he got to hold a lot of baby goats and pet baby goats on the head and essentially be a wizardy science shepherd of transgenic spider goats. There was a lot of milk being tossed. So then they spliced the spider silk gene into the DNA of silkworm moths. And rather than standard silk, those caterpillars now spun this highly durable and really prized spider silk with much less waste. And when I visited his lab, there were trays of chonky caterpillars just munching, munching, munching on ground mulberry pellets. And there were also other trays filled with soft, egg-looking cocoons that would be boiled and spooled. With the silkworms, we were, one, because technology advanced significantly further, we were able to actually cut and splice in our gene in exactly the same spot as the gene was for the silkworm silk protein. So now everything there is exactly the same as it was, except there's a different protein being made instead of the silkworm protein is making the spider silk protein. And it proceeds to just put it right into the cocoon as if it were its own silk. And when you're saying you just pop the code in, I have a feeling it's a little bit more complicated than that. How does one do transgenic like recoding? Like right, that? right. So in the random ones, you know, there are lots of, of DNA out there that allows you to randomly insert something into a chromosome. Mm-hmm. And so it just randomly goes in. The new CRISPR-Cas9 system allows you to very precisely make two cuts and then 
you now have a gap in the DNA. And the, the cells use two methods, one of which is very precise, but very low frequency. Mm-hmm. It does another one that's very imprecise, but much higher frequency. And we went with both. And the only one that worked was imprecise in large amounts. Okay. So it meant that we could put it in. We didn't have to be exact. If you do the other way, you got to be exact because mm-hmm. it's going to fit it right where it's supposed to be. This one, you got some slop in exactly where it goes, but it still goes in the same site that we cut out, which was in this case, the silkworm silk protein gene. And what did you start with? Did you start by putting these genes into E. coli, and then did you move up to goats, and then alfalfa, and then so yes. what? What yeah. was the order? So we we started with with bacteria just because they're easy. Yeah, you know we can put come up with a new gene, we can pop it in E. coli and get protein in in three to four months. Mm-hmm. We then went to the goats. Um, and we worked with a company in Canada who had already developed a technology to get it into the goat's milk so that we, you know, we were able to take their technology and our technology, put them together and end up with the spider goats. Peanut butter chocolate, Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy, these pairings have nothing on spider goats. Now, what if you're too vegan for all this business? Is outsourcing spideroin limited to goats and caterpillars? Nope. They're also working on cramming the gene into and harvesting silk from alfalfa. What? We then sort of, we started on alfalfa and then, you know, more recently in the last couple of years, we've moved on to the silkworm, particularly precision. But it's silkworms before, uh, what now, almost uh, eight or nine years ago we did, but we did it very imprecisely. Mm-hmm. And so the problem was, is that when you bred those worms, a lot of times they'd lose that gene. Oh. Because it wasn't in the identical place that they expected it to be. Mm-hmm. So now we've got it in right where it should be. And we're through, we've done five generations, four generations, and it, it behaves just exactly like it's expected to be. I mean, it gets carried on to the next generation at a certain frequency, which is exactly what you'd expect to have happen. Mm-hmm. And let's say you're working with E. coli. You are getting the protein in a liquid form and then extruding that? Or can you walk me through really briefly, like with each of those different organisms, how you're how you're harvesting it? Right. So with with both with alfalfa, with the goats, with the bacteria, process is the same. We have to isolate the spider silk protein. Mm-hmm. And although it's slightly different technology that you use, bottom line is you have to end up with pure protein. This is a protein farm. <laughs> Once you have the pure protein, um, then we've developed a technology that allows it to dissolve it in water. And that's a huge advance because previous to that, and still a large number of people working in the field dissolve it in some pretty nasty materials. And and the other thing is, is that they're all costly. So you can't imagine that as a real step forward in the manufacturing process. So being able to dissolve it in water is a big step forward. Then we, you know, we can spin fibers out of that. We can use it for coatings. We can use that as an adhesive, all of those things fall out of having it in water. The silkworm makes fibers for us. And so, you know, literally we use the standard standard technology for unwrapping cocoons, washing the silk and wrapping it onto a spool. P.S. How is silk spun? Well, I watched a video put out by How It's Made and they had this to say. It's hard to believe this beautiful fabric comes from worms. The female silkworm lays up to 400 eggs in one shot, then promptly dies. Mm, Okay, how it's made. It's not really a worm. And also, a lady silk moth has, like, a tragic 
flightless life, and then her babies are boiled so that the cocoon doesn't break and the threads, which can be nearly a kilometer long, stay in one continuous form. So 50 or so cocoons are unraveled, they're spun into one thread. It's labor intensive. So if you see a guy who has ever tossed his tie over his shoulder because he's eating chili, you can be like, I get it. A lot of non-worms lost their lives for that tie. When you think about ramping it up to a more, uh, say, commercial level, what do you think is going to be the avenue that you're going to go down? Do you think it's going to be the pure fiber from silkworms, or do you think the alfalfa has the best yield? Um, so I think, oh, I, I certainly believe ultimately alfalfa is going to be um, the way to go to make protein. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with uh, if silkworms is the only thing you're going to do is get fibers. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to dissolve that silk is is an incredible losing proposition. You know, it, it just, it's not the way to get spider silk protein Mm -hmm. so spider silk protein is either going to be you know from from one of the other three and and hopefully um you know we're going to advance the technology so alfalfa will be the the choice because certainly by all stretches it looks like it's going to be the least expensive process to go to and then with byproduct you were mentioned earlier that when you put this into goats and goat milk that's great but then you have some excess goat milk that you can't do much with you can't right. necessarily take that to the farmer's market on a Sunday no, no, transgenic spider no. goat milk yeah yeah not gonna happen <laughs> not gonna happen <laughs> that's one of the big advantages of alfalfa is, is that you know we'll take out two percent of the protein the other 98 percent we can use for animal feed Mm-hmm. Um, use it as a protein supplement. Turns out that things like fish farms are struggling to get enough protein to expand. Mm-hmm. So we'd have protein that we'd be able to use there. You can also convert all of that waste into ethanol if you want to use that. So I think there are a number of routes that you could use for your waste from alfalfa that actually will probably pay for the processing. So spiderwebs, not just terrifying midnight face veils. They could also feed fish and keep lethal catheter funk away and make your car lighter and more efficient and maybe be transplanted into your own body. And what is something that in your career, isolating this for the last 30 years and working with it, that you were really looking forward to as a goal or as kind of a goal post? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's still there. And I think all of, uh, you know, for the last at least 10 to 15 years, I think all of the people that have been working in my lab want to see a product come out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of, of at least a major goal is to say, you know, all the work that we've done has led to something that somebody can buy. I feel like you are at the forefront of it. If there's an expert in this, it's you in the world. <laughs> well, we've certainly been at it longer than anybody else. And I think we've done more basic, I would say without a doubt, we've done more basic science in terms of not only the proteins, but how the fibers are made, the, the three-dimensional structure of the fi- in the fibers and things like that. I think we've done more than anybody else. You know, there are people who have niches, but I think we've covered the whole waterfront. Have you ever thought about just getting a silk tie made, a bow tie for a special occasion? You know, it's not my style. So, you know, <laughs> if, if it's going to be something, it'd be a golf shirt. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's the direction I, I'd go is a golf shirt. So A spider silk golf shirt? Spider silk golf shirt. I got no idea. There's a, no obvious reason why it would be an advantage. But, you know, at least you'd have a talking point when you're out playing. So. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to get a big embroidered spider on exactly, the back. Exactly. Front and back. Yeah. 
front and back. Um, can I ask questions from listeners? Sure. Oh my gosh. Listeners have questions. Okay, before we get into your Spidey Silk queries, a few words about sponsors of the show who help make it possible to donate to a cause of the ologist choosing each week. And I realized this week that I forgot to ask Randy, so I rang him up on the horn. Just norm core as hell. And he answered at his desk. Phones, man. They're magic. And then he said he'd like the donation to go toward the Women's Empowerment and Entrepreneurship Project in Guatemala, which supports women-run farming initiatives to bring to market textiles, organic vegetables, and free-range chickens. And this was through heifer.org. Okay, now you may hear some words about some sponsors. KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at KiwiCo.com with the promo code ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com, promo code ologies. They're going to love it. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days and along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee. They offer free plant consultation forever. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, your landscape design, and they curate thousands of plants. They got climates, they got locations. I am stoked about this because I've wanted a fig tree for so long and I'm like, I don't know where to get the fig tree. I'm not quite sure where to plant it in the yard. And I went to the Fast Growing Trees website and I was like, boom, I'm in zone 10. This fig tree would work well for me. Done. And right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code ologies at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code ologies at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code ologies. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Okay, here's how I like my clothes. 
I like them classic, I like them well-made, I like them comfortable, and I like them ethical, which is why I flipped when I first heard about Quince. So Quince partners directly with these top factories, so they cut out the cost of the middleman, and then they pass the savings on to, obviously, you. They have these 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters that start at 50 bucks, they have organic cotton sweaters, they have washable silk tops, they even have 14 karat jewelry in case you are looking for a present maybe for yourself. So Quince items are priced like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. But Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And I like that their styles are well-made, well-cut, but also classic. I did not own a cashmere sweater before Quince. That was the kind of thing that I would splurge for for other people, but not myself. But I was like, you know what, Quince? I think I shall. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ologies. You look amazing. Now, this first question was also asked by Amanda. Anna Thompson says there's a series of photos that go around every now and then of spider webs when they are on different drugs. Are these real images? And have we learned anything from giving spiders drugs? Do they just have a good time? Like spiders given caffeine? So the, the, the answer is that um, because the, the, you know, the, the web spinning process is really genetically set, mm-hmm. um, the drugs do mess it up. Um, it turns out that the first paper was published in Scientific American in 1969. Oh, it was the 60s, you know. <laughs> A lot of drugs kicking around. And the answer is yes, that various drugs have um, substantial effects on sort of, of um, deranged, might be too strong a word, mm-hmm. but probably not inaccurate about what the webs look like when they're on various drugs. Really? Yeah. This was indeed a study, and it was later replicated in the mid-1990s by NASA. So if you look up pictures, you'll see these scattered and kind of haphazard webs on uppers and caffeine. There are half-completed ones on hallucinogens, and let's just say some geometric minimalism done on sleeping pills. So according to researchers, each of the spiders interviewed during the process thought their web looked great and was hella tight. And then upon waking the next morning, a lot of spiders reported being embarrassed by their work. They thought it was a lot better when they were under the influence. That's not true. And and to the best of my knowledge, there's no real correlation between what the drug was and what it did to disturb it. But it's probably because we don't know enough about the nervous system of a spider to actually be able to, you know, to make an accurate judgment about, you know, what they're what they're doing on various kinds of drugs. Mm -hmm. I just looked at my phone, by the way, and I accidentally asked that question at 420, which is a, <laughs> I'm not a big smoker, but it was, gotta say, that was good timing. Um, Kimberly Fajardo wants to know just how strong is spider silk? So the idea is that, that in terms of energy to break, which is the combination of stretch and strength, it's about four times stronger than Kevlar. Um, 10 to 12 times stronger than steel. And it's important to remember that it's, it's that combination of stretch and strength that makes the spider silk unique. So there are no man-made materials. There are no other biological materials that have that kind of a combination. Yeah. Oof. Um, Evelyn Jensen wants to know, does spider silk come in different colors? 
Um, interestingly enough, the answer is yes to a certain extent. So one of the spiders that we work with is called a golden orb weaver, mm -hmm. and its silk is actually a gold color. You mentioned the tapestry. Mm -hmm. If you see a picture of the tapestry, it's very gold colored. Yeah. Um, so very distinctive of, of the golden orb weavers. Um, there's another spider, and, and by the way, nobody knows why it's gold. Nobody knows what the... We actually spent a little time and, and got a little sidetracked trying to identify the dye or what it, where it was. Mm -hmm. um, we never were successful. In, in getting there. To the best of my knowledge, neither has anybody else. Yeah. Um, there's another spider that makes sort of a greenish-hued silk. And then there's a whole family that make everything from sort of a brownish silk to a pinkish silk. But they use it almost exclusively for their egg cases. So it's clearly to camouflage the egg case. So if you go out, you can you can find these because you don't see it in the dragline silk. You only see it when they when they make their, their egg case. So there are, there's a pretty wide variety of colors um, that are out there, particularly for the egg cases. So spiders are just out there using their stiffest silk to make little Easter eggs. Oh, and if you are an expectant parent and you're not sure what kind of nursery theme you want, consider camo. I mean, you won't be able to find the baby under all its grease paint and tiny mossy ghillie suit onesie, but also no bears will probably eat it. Spiders know what's up. Moving on. Deli Dames, Ashley Kelly, Caleb Patton, Canon Purdy and first time question asker Laurence all echoed Christina's question. Christina Neal wants to know, how do you feel about Spider-Man? Is there even an ounce of truth to the idea that spider silk supporting the weight of a human being could be used or that it could be used in weaponry? So it turns out that that's a, a very interesting question and we have answered it. We got answered, <laughs> we got asked that question the first time from a children's program at the Canadian Broadcasting Company radio program. Uh -huh. And they ask us, you know, particularly, I guess it's Spider-Man 2 really stops the train and ask the question, could he really do it? Yeah. So, um, put the students to work on it. And the answer is yes. <laughs> There's no question. So we, we, you know, we took it like the last speedometer reading was like 120 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we counted up how many cars there were and how big the engine. We got rough weights for those. So we were able to calculate how much energy was in that train. And then go back and look how many times did he stick the web onto the wall. And the answer is he actually was about three times over um, <laughs> having having the ability to stop the train. That was kind of where we left it. Then we got another question, you know, and, and somebody came up with, well, how much would he have to consume to make the the spot because it's all protein right right, right. so it turns out we calculated that was about had to eat about 85 pounds of steak a day <laughs> so we felt like yes it was possible um but clearly practically it's unlikely that he could have, have managed to eat enough to make as much spider silk protein as, as he was able to shoot out it's gonna so. go to sizzler, sizzler is the one. P.S. In real life, it wouldn't shoot from his wrists, though, because a more anatomically accurate Spider-Man would extrude silk from the slowly wriggling fingers right next to his anus. Keeping that in mind, are you hungry? Who else asked about eating? Let's see. Brandon Butler wants to know, is it true that spiders can eat their silk and recycle it? The answer is yes. Several species do that. Some of them do it actually on a daily basis. So it turns out to be very useful because initially when people are trying to understand something about the proteins, they would put radioactive amino acids on the web and then allow the spider to, to eat it. Mm -hmm. 
what we've done is is not used radioactive, but used amino acids that we can use for nuclear magnetic resonance studies for structure. And we put it in their water. And so when they drink the water, they recycle those amino acids and it goes right into the silk. So huh. uh, the answer is yes, they do. And it, it's a very useful thing to do when you're studying the silk itself. Yeah. And I imagine then they can just uh, kind of destroy and munch on their own web and rebuild it if it gets damaged, right? Yes. Frequently, they don't do that. Usually when it's it's going to be repaired, they don't seem to clean up the old web. They just put a new one, you know, fill in that area with new silk. Oh, just imagine an HGTV show where you make a house, but your building materials come from your butt. And then when it kind of starts looking shabby, you just eat the whole house, make another butt house. It's rustic. It's resourceful. It's DIY, why, why? Speaking of why, some other folks shared this next question, and they are Evan Jude, Amanda Baldino, Casey, and Anna Thompson wants to know, Related. Why do some spiders string webs across wide expanses like paths and trails and doorways instead of smaller areas? I imagine she has gotten a spider face on her. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's possibly two, depending on one is is that that again they don't plan very well. Mm-hmm. They're not really intelligent about it. So they may start with some guy lines that are way out and then a web that's more in the middle. But also as they get larger, they need to make a bigger web just to catch more prey. Oh. So as as they increase in size, the, their need for food increases. So they usually make a bigger web. Ah, oh, they got to catch more little buggos. That's right. <gasps> that's right. Ashley Kelly wants to know, after listening to a podcast called The Biology of Superheroes, Spider-Man episode, I have so many questions. Like, can it really be used in healing wounds and tendons? And how thick would it need to be to support me in order to swing from building to building? So we can go to the last one. I have no idea what your weight is, so I won't presume (laughs) to to say anything like that. We have had a student suspended in a chair from the ceiling, and the the line was narrower than a pencil. (gasps) So it was, it was not that big. Certainly in the, in the Spider-Man movies, you look at the, at the diameter of the silky shooting. There's no question that, that he could do what he does. Oh, this is changing how I feel about Spider-Man movies. I like them even more now. And then what about biomedical purposes? Tendons? Yeah. Patrons who wanted to know about medical uses are Lacey J. Schuer, Amanda, and Laura Merriman, who shouted out Ologite's beloved thermophysiologist, Dr. Shane Campbell-Staten, and his Biology of Superheroes podcast episode on Spider-Man as another excellent resource on medical uses of the silk. So we certainly think there's a there's a good opportunity for artificial ligaments and artificial tendons mm-hmm. because one of the unique features about spider silk is that for whatever reason it's almost impossible to get an immune response to it. Really? Even when you try. So, for instance, I know of nobody who's ever made antibodies to the main portion of the spider silk protein. You can make it to the end parts. You can't make it to the main part of the protein. And we've tried. I mean, we've tried different organisms. We've tried doing it different ways. It just does not generate an immune reaction. Um, and we've done some work here, not in, in massive detail, but we've demonstrated that, that you can implant our synthetic spider silk fibers and some of our synthetic fiber silk films into animals and not get any reaction at all which is a huge benefit absolutely absolutely and now spidey tech 
is a company, obviously, that you work with, <laughs> that you're involved with. And what do you think the kind of principal goal of Spidey Tech is? And also, how did you come up with the name? I didn't. Roberto came up with the uh-huh. name. I think that, you know, adhesives and coatings are going to be the first place we go. Because mm-hmm. I think it's got the, the lowest barrier to market in terms of that. I think it has unique capabilities that aren't out there right now, mm-hmm. which, again, I think is important if you're coming out with a new product. Yeah. He mentioned to me that Spidey was a good way to get people not scared of spiders and to think of it in a kind of a, oh, Spidey, in a more friendly way. (laughs) Yeah, and I think, you know, part of that comes from Spider-Man movie Mm because Spidey certainly, you know, used multiple times there. You like that Spidey? So you're right. I I think it does present a a much more acceptable kind of a use as opposed to arachna cream or something like that. (laughs) Spidey does seem so friendly. I'm a spider. I make cool stuff. Here to help. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It's a very super heroic name. Eva also asked this question. Nadine wants to know, is it true that most spiders we see out in the world are female? For the orb weavers, and that's what most people see, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, in general, the females do put out the webs. Many, not maybe, well, I would say probably most of the males hang out and actually steal their food because they're much smaller. So they're only about a tenth uh-huh. the size uh-huh. uh, of the females. Steal their food and hope not to get eaten because, I mean, the males are there for one thing. That's to deliver a sperm sac and, and to procreate. That's the only thing they do. I have a delivery for you. They're just busters. They're just baby Pretty much leeches. Speaking of little disappointments, Emily asks, what are cobwebs versus spider webs? And why don't I notice the cobwebs until long after the spider is gone? So most, uh, so cobwebs, the proteins that cobweb weavers use are in many cases very similar to the proteins the orb weavers use. Mm. So the cobweb is basically a three-dimensional net. Um, it does not have any adhesive on it. Oh. So what happens is the, that the, the organism physically gets in and can't find its way out. Okay. As opposed to being stuck on the web like with an orb web. And so that's one of the major differences. That's why most of those have a more potent poison because they got to catch them and, and keep them from getting away. Got it. Um, so like a black so, widow is a right, cobweb. Right, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So if they're spun as a cobweb, they're a different structure, but also a cobweb can refer to that dusty web that's lost its stick and been abandoned. But just think of how many more cobwebs you would have to clean up if spiders didn't do it for you by eating them. Thank you, spider. I think part of the reason you don't see them normally is you usually see them after they're abandoned and dust starts gathering on them. Mm -hmm. So when they're there, you want them pretty, you want them so that that you're not very visible because you want something to fly into it and then get lost in there. So if it's very visible, they're going to avoid it. Yeah. So I think that, that the reason you see it is that, you know, that they're cobwebs and, and people usually think about them after they get dust on them. Mm-hmm. This is just my question, but how dope are your Halloween decorations every year? Um, not all that much, actually. Okay. I, I, I you know, we, we, uh, we don't do anything unique there. And for some reason, to me, spiders are, are more an all year thing than a once a day thing so, yeah. or once a year thing. So I felt that way about Halloween when I was goth. I was like, don't dress up as me on one day. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I, I'm like this all the time. Yeah. I'm constantly wearing fishnet shirts. Like, right. don't do it just right. on Halloween. Yeah. So I get it. Um, do you ever watch a movie about like a haunted house and you think spiders wouldn't make those kind of webs? Um, yeah, but you know, the fact is, is that, that the, the spider webs come in such a variety of different shapes and sizes that, you know, yeah, you'd say that's probably outlandish, but you'd never say, oh, I'd 
wouldn't guarantee you'd never <laughs> yeah. find one like that. Oh, I forgot to ask you before we get back to Patreon questions. Is there any flim flam that you'd like to debunk? Like any myths about spiders or spider silk that you're just sick of hearing? Like, okay, let's clear this up. Um, boom, boom, boom. I, I think part of it is certainly that, that a lot of people believe that all the spiders are poisonous. Certainly as far as, as poisonous for humans, the answer is that's just simply not true. Right. You know, there's, there's three, depending on how you argue about it, there might be a fourth one in the U.S., and Randy means venomous, poison is ingested, venom is injected, but you know what he means. Do not waste your finger muscles emailing or tweeting me about it. Spend that energy giving a hardworking and busy spider a little wave, a little thumbs up. So uh, the other thing is, is that uh, a study done in Australia demonstrated, and this was people who came to the hospital claiming they've been bitten by a spider, mm-hmm. and they actually checked it, and less than less than 10% of them were actually bitten by a spider. Really? Yeah. It's mosquitoes? Yeah. All kinds of other things. Some of them weren't even bites. Oh. So, you know, you hear all these people say, oh, yeah, I got a spider bite last night. And you're going, you know, you got a 90% chance of being full of it. Right. Trish, that's a hickey. Can yeah. you not? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Dave, you've got a zit on your neck. Yeah. Get right. out of here. Right. <laughs> um, someone asked, Jen Anathis asked, all this talk about eating bugs, can we eat spider webs? Sometimes that's the only thing I have in the house. Shrug emoji, she says. There's a lot of protein. Could we one day be eating spider webs? Uh, so first of all, there isn't a lot of protein. Most of the webs weigh very little. Mm, okay. So for instance, the entire gland that makes dragline silk is only good for about 100 milligrams max. Now that's good for several hundred yards of, of single fiber silk. Mm-hmm. But that's not a lot to eat. Right. Um, number two, the spider silk, I'm sure, is digestible to a certain extent. But what we found is that that there are very few organisms who could break it down. Mm. So we know fungi can, but fungi can break down almost anything, or at least some species of fungi can. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that that would probably not be a, a very nutritious way to go about augmenting your diet. Right. Not to mention it's expensive, right? It's It would be expensive. <laughs> like how much a kilogram? Uh, $2,500. <sighs> That's like, I don't, I have no idea how much chicken costs a kilogram, but I'm thinking less. Yeah, quite a bit less. Quite a bit less. (laughs) Okay, I had to crunch some numbers because I live in America, and the only reference points I have for kilos are when there are headlines about people smuggling heroin in their suitcases or under toupees. But a kilo of chicken is 2.2 pounds, which is about half a whole roaster chicken or about $5 worth of chicken breasts, which is 300 times as expensive as spider silk. Probably even more, actually, if you're like starving for spidroin and lazy and you just have it delivered on Postmates. Billy Marino wants to know, how do spiders use their silk to fly? I think he's talking about ballooning. Yeah, so ballooning, yeah. So basically, especially when they're small, um, you know, there's a nest uh, a nest of, of 100, 150 little itty bitty spiders mm-hmm. and they got to spread out if they're going to eat anything. So what happens is they usually go up into something, they lay a big line off the end and when the wind gets up, they jump. <gasps> 
and their their fate is now completely dependent on where they end up. But here in the spring, what happens is you can go out and see some of the fields, and they look like they're coated with spider silk because all of these spiders have jumped, and their lines are laying out across the like the sagebrush or the grass or something mm-hmm. like that. And I've seen pictures along the coast of California where you see that because the marine layer comes in and you get drops for dew forming on that. Mm-hmm. So it looks like the whole entire thing is covered with spider silk because all these little guy lines are laying out there. Mm-hmm. Can't they get pretty high, like 10,000 feet Yeah, they, or something? Yeah, they, they found them, I think they found them clear into the 30 to 40, I mean, up as high as airplane, as, as the jets fly. How do they not run out of silk? Um, they don't. They just mm-hmm. put one thing in and let the wind get it. Oh. So it's, it's, it's like they're putting out a sail. <gasps> so they use it like a sail. Oh, my gosh. So it really is wherever the wind blows. You, yeah. you got that right. You oh, got that wow. right. Okay. Uh, Zwelf Juniper wants to know, Hiya, how many animals did you consider before landing on these goatses? Um, not very many because okay. the company we work with specifically focused on goats okay. for a multitude of reasons. One being that these goats were called breed early, lactate early. So five months are sexually mature. Whoa. You breed them and five months later you have a goat producing milk. Dang. So in less than a year, you've got a complete cycle. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge advantage. Yeah. Um, and especially being here in Utah where dairy is a big business, mm-hmm. we always get asked why goats and not cows. So the answer to that question is, is number one, goat uh, milk production per pound of feed is basically the same in goats as it is in, in cows. Mm-hmm. They don't produce as much. They're much easier to deal with. So a 1,500-pound cow doesn't want to go anywhere. <laughs> you kind of am backed into a corner. <laughs> they also are much more adaptable human orientation. So our kids, shortly after they're born, after a couple, three days, are then fed by hand, milk mm. by hand. And I'll guarantee you, they have no idea they're goats. They think they're humans. <laughs> so there really are easy to work with mm-hmm. um, in terms of that. The waste is much less than it is with cows. So it makes it easier for cleanup and that kind of stuff. Um, and last but not least, my people tell you that baby goats are much cuter than baby cows. That's very factual. There's yes. nothing cuter than a baby goat. It's a fact. Absolutely. Did you like low-key love getting to work with the goats? Were you like, I never really realized that working with spider butts would lead me to getting to cuddle baby goats? No, not so much because I, I, I raised sheep when I was, uh, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when my kids started growing up, we moved out and uh, had a place out of town and they raised sheep. So I got to see baby lambs, you know, <laughs> multiple times every year. So baby goats probably are cuter than baby lambs, but not by a lot. I'm going to do a not poll because I think that that would be a very heated debate, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I certainly. <laughs> And it, 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 it's, it's a tough one because I, I certainly do like, do like lambs. There's no doubt about it. Just so. do a transgenic one where we got a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, I took a Twitter poll and at press time, it was baby goats in the lead 62%. I regret not including baby spiders in the poll. So that's now a mystery that's just lost to time. Okay, Gregory O'Conway wants to know, dear Alward, can we use spider silk to make a kick-ass parachute? The answer is yes. Um, but what we're probably more interested in is the parachute lines. 
because uh-huh. one of the problems you have is is that especially if you're dropping let's say a, a tank out of a, of a cargo and you and you want it to go more frequently than I think any of the DOD would like to, to believe the parachute collapses uh-huh. because obviously it goes out it tries to open and then at the end it goes wham when it opens up and it collapses mm. so we see is that if we made the guy lines out of spider silk when it hit that end it would just stretch it so the parachute would no longer collapse it would allow the guy lines to absorb all of that energy and then as we talked it gets released as heat mm-hmm. so it's not going to go bouncing up and down like a trampoline mm-hmm. it's going to go down and then slowly come back up and keep the parachute from collapsing oh. now we may also want to do it for all the parachutes but particularly those where you're dumping something heavy out mm-hmm. we could see this would be a huge advantage to what they have right now and speaking of DOD stuff, what about armors, things like that? So we much? don't see spider silk as, as, from our perspective anyway, mm-hmm. uh, as the way to go for protective armor, particularly mm-hmm. things like bulletproof vests. Mm-hmm. And the reason is it stretches too much. And that's what's unique about it. Yes. That's what makes it key. So my joke is when somebody asks, is I know I can make you a bulletproof vest. It just stops a bullet on the wrong side of your chest. Oh, no. So that's not <laughs> particularly useful. Mm-hmm. Um also, any movies that you've seen with spiders or spider webs that you oh oh eight, eight legged freaks eight legged freaks is a movie you have to see <laughs> what is it it's oh it it's it's the it it's it's like the the parody of every <laughs> b horror movie you've ever seen. <laughs> Radioactivity, guy has spiders there. They all become giant spiders. Uh This little 12-year-old kid sees it. He tries to go to the sheriff and tell the sheriff. The sheriff doesn't listen to the little kid. (laughs) So these are loose, destroying, you know, picking up trailer houses, chasing people (laughs) down, having eggs and and magically getting giant whatever else. And then toward the end, somebody said that little kid comes and says, you know, I know what's going on. And and somebody says, Sheriff, why don't you listen to the little kid? And so they finally managed to clear up. But it's like when it first came out, I I took everybody in the lab for the movie. Um, We went and I said, everybody has to come up with at least 10 things that are absolutely, totally false that they find in this movie. And trust me, we had lots more than 10 that we could find. It, it was, it was, it, it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. But those things are also delightful because they're so false. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, some, some people don't see it that way, which is, which is the unfortunate part. Here, spiders just going about their business and the things that they're making naturally could literally save our lives. I hope so. So thanks, spiders. Thank you, spider. Just get one of those little spider catchers, take them outside, let them go do their business, let them keep evolving. It's been 500 million years. Let them That's do their right. thing. That's right. Um, the thing that you hate the most about your job or about spider silk, what's so either annoying or irksome or just uh, troubling? Is there anything that you're just like, ugh, this sucks? Um, for us, I think it has, it has been, um, heading toward the commercialization direction, Mm -hmm. um, just because it's been difficult to convince people that, that it can have advantages over what they're currently using, Mm -hmm. particularly in the medical world. It's astounding to me that advances ever get made in medicine based on our experiences because these people, you know, if, if you say you're going to have to go back to the FDA for approval, 
immediately it's off the table. Mm-hmm. They, they would rather have inferior products. So one, for instance, we've made a hernia mesh mm-hmm. that is far superior to what they use right now. Absolutely no question. Mm-hmm. But hernia meshes are off the table. There is not a company that we're, that, that we know of any that wants to touch it because of the lawsuits around, around vaginal meshes failing, mm-hmm. hernia meshes failing. Well, the reason they failed is because they're made out of lousy material. Yeah. Um, but you talk to them and it's like, we're not touching it with a 10 foot pole. We don't want to have to take on, you know, we don't want to have to do the, the FDA testing. We don't want to deal with possible lawsuits. We don't want anything to do with it. So we'll keep using our lousy stuff. Yeah. So it's that technology has advanced faster than maybe mindsets. Certainly acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's so great to know how it's made and that it's a protein structure that is so versatile mm-hmm. and that it can be manufactured. I think it's just so unreal to people because it's so science fiction. Right. You're like, oh no, this is 2019. Like we can actually do this now, which is right. so exciting. Right. And what about the best thing about spider silk or your job? I think the the best thing about my job, and I always say that, um, you know, it's coming to work and, and you know, having a realistic expectation that you're going to find something new multiple times a year. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I, other than a day I have meetings all day, I would, I have not dreaded a day coming to work since I started. Oh, for 30 years? For 30 years. You've got to get this cake, man. Yeah. <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> You've got a great job. <laughs> and where can people find out more about you or about your work or about Spidey Tech? Um, certainly, Spidey Tech has a website. We have a website on USU. If you just do Spider Silk USU, you'll get to our website. And we have a Facebook page. Mm-hmm. We're not quite as good on the on the social media side of things. Yeah, you got to get a social media in. Yeah, that's right. I'm afraid it's passed me by, so it's... <laughs> You're not out at Coachella wearing a spider hat and just I, being I, an influencer. I, no, I am not, and, and I'm <laughs> I'm not I'm not tweeting to uh, to keep up with the president or anything else here. So <laughs> hashtag Spidey Life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. This was Certainly. such a joy. <laughs> and enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Okay, so ask smart people some silky questions because you'll never know what they know unless you ask. And I hope this has given you greater appreciation for our leggy friends and this Halloween season when you see a spider web decoration just feel free to stop everyone around you inform them of the molecular engineering that goes into it maybe if you get a spider web in your face eat it like cotton candy that shit's expensive so for more on the topics discussed you can head over to my website for links it's alleyward.com slash ologies slash Spidronology, and there are links to sponsors and codes in the show notes as well. And for merch, there's a link at alleyward.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltz and Bonnie Dutch of the podcast You Are That, which is a hilarious podcast for managing that. Thank you to Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning the Facebook Ologies podcast group. Um, a few things live appearance-wise, I'm keynoting SciComm Camp in Southern California on November 8th, and there may still be a few spots left in case you can convince your work or your lab or yourself that this conference is an important thing to attend to communicate science, uh, you can go to SciComCamp.com. They have more details and it's November 8th through 10th. The lineup is awesome. It includes Flash Forwards, Rose Eveleth and the physics girl, Diana Cowan. 
Also on October 17th, it's the International Myeloma Foundation's annual comedy benefit in LA, and it's hosted by Ray Romano, and there are performances by Patton Oswalt, and Amanda Seals, and Dimitri Martin, and Kevin Nealon, and I'm hosting the Red Carpet Live on the IMF Facebook page, and there will be links to all this in the show notes or up at alleyward.com slash ologies slash spidronology. And thank you to Jarrett Sleeper of the Mental Health Podcast, My Good Bad Brain, for assistant editing, and to the center of our webs, Stephen Ray Morris of the Percast and C. Jurassic Wright for adhering the pieces together each week. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, you know I tell you a secret. And this week's secret, Shannon and Bonnie stayed down here in LA, and when they did, they left a loaf of sourdough bread, and I've just been slowly eating it piece by piece by putting it in the microwave until it's all gooey, and then putting butter on it and then putting salt on top of that, and just walking around eating this soggy piece of buttery bread. And I'll have you know, Shannon, Bonnie, I finished it today. I tore through it like a locust. Also, while I recorded all these asides, Grammy, my dog, is sitting next to me, and she is wearing a spider-themed sweater that I got her. So do keep an eye out. I will be posting a picture of her in the spider sweater on Instagram. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology. Meteorology, Olfactology, Nephology, Seriology, Selenology. Sorry, I'm not home right now. I'm walking into Spiderweb, so leave a message and I'll call you back. <laughs>